Well, archaeological digs pepper the, the land today of, of Goshen, Egypt. The area of, of Goshen has seen thousands of years of civilizations built on top of each other. And so teams scour the area today, just like looking for the next big find, the, the, the next big treasure. There's one series of finds that has archaeologists really scratching their heads. The first was is they found the foundations of, of a palace. It doesn't look like much, but the foundation and the walls, they tell a story that this was at one time a very incredible house. But experts even recreated what the mansion would have, would have looked like. It was a great discovery, but this was very, very, very puzzling because this palace wasn't Pharaoh's palace. It's very odd. It's a royal-looking palace, but it's not really royalty. In the yard, there were 12 tombs that were discovered. One of those tombs caught their eye. You can see the one tomb is a miniature pyramid tomb. Now, only pharaohs were commemorated with pyramid tombs during this time. So who is this guy? As they explored this tomb, they found a broken statue. And this is really where the curiosity began to peak. The statue had yellow painted skin. And this is very, uh, very telling because in hieroglyphics or ancient Egyptian art, yellow skin always communicated foreigners. So how is it that this mansion was owned by a foreigner, and an immigrant, owned this palace in Goshen, Egypt? What foreigner had pharaoh-like status to be lived here and buried with such high honor? The clues kept on coming. The statue not only had yellow skin, but as they dusted it off more, they found that it originally had a multicolored coat, a style that was not common in Egypt. So what foreigner with a multicolored coat had pharaoh-like status? This is when archaeologists started seriously considering, did we just run into the tomb of Joseph? Foreigner, pharaoh-like status, multicolored coat. I mean, there's a guy that fits all these descriptions. To add to this, the statue had red hair, which at first doesn't seem like, you know, really anything. But we do know that red hair was a, a Jewish feature. It was not a feature of Egyptians, but, but Jews. King David, for example, had red hair. As Samuel tells us that he was ruddy, so he had red hair. This could very well be a Jewish man. One of the best evidences, though, is that as they went into the burial chamber, it was completely empty. Now, this is very curious. Grave robbers rarely if ever, took body material. It was never worth anything. It only was added weight on their exit. So a lot of grave robbers were intimidated by the body. You know, they were taking from this body. We don't want to be haunted by this guy or judged by this guy. They always left the body. This guy's body was gone. And we know in Genesis that Joseph requested upon his family's exit from Egypt that his bones be taken to the promised land. So could it be that this property... The tomb, the statue, is that of the famed Joseph. See, this is the man that we're taking a summer to explore. A story of a broken family, human trafficking, high-level leadership, scandals, massive lows, incredible highs. I mean, the book of Genesis devotes more information and details to this man than any other character. You think about that. More than Adam and Eve, more than Noah, more than Abraham, it's Joseph that dominates the pages of the first book of the Bible. And when Scripture puts that much attention on one man, it means we've got to know this guy. And so that we will do. I hope you're ready. Here we go. Genesis chapter 35 is where we're going to be 
this morning. Genesis chapter 35. We got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 29 in those Bibles. I really encourage you to grab a Bible. We're going to be taking this very slowly, just slowly following this guy named Joseph. It's difficult to start the story of a person. I don't know if you've ever had to write like a a eulogy or or an obituary. You know, it's like, where do you start? As Denham said earlier, my my grandma passed away just a few hours ago. And, uh, you know, this morning he spent time on the phone just sharing memories and and piecing those together. I'm I'm sure you know what it's like. It's like, where where do you really start the the story of a person, you know? My My grandma used to sit in the back row every every church service when I was growing up. She went to the same church I did. And um, we had Sunday night church services were like a, a bigger thing back then. And I remember every Sunday night, I would always sit in the very back corner pew and I would sit by my grandma. And she knew something about me that if you, like, if you just rub the back of my head, I, that, that like just puts me to sleep. And so she would do that every single Sunday night during church service. She just put me to sleep by, and I was like, you know, eight or nine. So it's like embarrassing to fall asleep next to grandma. But, you know, there, there I was. You know, so when you think about like someone's life, it's really hard to, where do, you, where do you start someone's life? Where do you start telling their story? If you really want to get to know someone, where do you start telling their story? And that's kind of what we run into when we run into a guy like, like Joseph. You know, where, where do you start Joseph's story? It's one of the biggest names in, in history. Where do you start? Do you start at his birth? I mean, that seems like a logical place to start. Do you start at his career? Because that's really when things start picking up. Do you, do you start like the first morning he found some peach fuzz on his upper lip? Like, you know, where, where do you start this story of Joseph? I think you start the story of Joseph by going back to his upbringing. I mean, you think about it. If, if you and I really wanted to get to know each other, I would take you to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, where I grew up. And I, I would just, I would show you around. I would show you the house. So that's the house that my dad built. And uh, there's the building that I was born in. It's now a mental hospital, by the way, which explains so much. I'd take you to the, the old country school that I went to 30 minutes out of town. And my grandma, she, uh, I, I played sports at that country school. And so my grandma started like this little, um, this little she called it like a little diner. And she would sell like hot dogs and, and, and brats right, right by the soccer field. So as I played soccer, all the parents could come and, and buy brats and, and hot dogs. Um, so I'd, I'd show you, you know, that area. I'd show you the little grocery store that, that was my first job. Or I'd show you my favorite willow tree by the tennis courts. It was so fun to swing on that willow tree. Or the old oak tree behind the, the, ch- the church in a, the farmer's field. And my friend and I fell out of it. My friend had to get stitches. Or I could take you t- by the, the ski hill that Nicole and I, we had our first date snowboarding when she accidentally fell on top of me. I, I would introduce you to my, my friends and, and my, my family. And you would leave that area n- feeling like you know me better because you've met the influences that, that helped form me um, when I was growing up. And then I would do the same. I would go to your hometown, right? And I would, I'd meet the people and the, the places that were part of forming who you are today and the family that raised you. And then I would leave that area knowing you better. You really want to get to know someone. You have to dig into their past. In a way, you really have to dig into their family and how they were brought up. And so that's what I want to do this morning, to just really start the life of Joseph. What we're going to do today is we're just going to meet his dad. We're going to hear a bit of his dad's story and get a better picture of what Joseph came out of, because that will add so much more dimension to this man that we're going to follow this summer. So with that, let me pray, and then we're just going to, we're going to jump into this. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, as, we, as Denim talked about last week, I, I thank you just for 
the just the facts in here, really. I, I hate to put it that way, but your your word is there's so much truth. You mean your word is truth. So God, we, we thank you so much that we can depend on your word. But it's also not some textbook that you've given to us. Uh, there, there's story in here, story that you invite us into to learn from. And so, Father, I ask that we do that today, that, that we don't just uh, look at this as maybe a story that we've heard many times before, but that we continue to go back to your word, to familiar stories, and say, all right, God, what else do you have for me from this? Because there's always something. And so, God, may you remind us of some things today. May you teach us of some new things today. More than anything, may you convict us today. May your Holy Spirit be active in illuminating this text to us, but also opening up, opening up our heart and really convicting us, because we need that. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a bit of a different message today, just as a heads up. It's a lot more information. Um, and the reason being is when you start a narrative in Scripture, to, to really um, get into the narrative a lot on the front end, you have to do a lot of background, a lot of context. And so today's going to be more information heavy. It's going to be a little bit more different than normal because it's just going to be a lot of information. You're going to be jumping around. But what we're doing is we're laying the foundation and the framework for this Joseph series that, that we're in. So I really encourage you to stick with this because the more we know this, the, the better and, and more dimension uh, we'll enjoy as we continue on. Let me introduce you to Joseph's dad, Jacob. Jacob walks with a limp. He's a smaller framed man. He's not a burly guy. He can't grow much chest hair. I feel his pain on that. Though he's not hairy or, you know, looks rugged, he is a hardworking man. He's a blue-collar guy. He embodies the idea of work smart, though he also works hard. And he has a lot to show for his hard, smart work. He's built a, quite a bit of, of a net worth. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. Today we would call them side girls. Call it what it is, Jacob had four wives. Jacob produces 13 kids with four women. And I just want to stop and say, don't do that, okay? Even though it's in the Bible, just don't do that. I say that because, you know, I, we get new people all the time. It's like, oh, four women. I like this church already. I can't even handle my one. You ever, do you ever see those, uh, those family like, stick, figure, stick figures on the back of vehicles? You know, you ever see those? Uh, imagine Joseph's. One dad, four women, 13 kids. You know, this is, for real, this is Joseph's family. Four wives, which is three too many. And it leads to an incredibly messed up and broken home. And all of this breeds envy and frustration and fighting. We see this happen all the time. In fact, those of you who tend to run from conflict, you, pro you probably experience this. Those who run from conflict tend to deal with more conflict because they don't ever actually take care of the issue. It just kind of sticks with them. And this is, this is Jacob. But God is still faithful with what God has promised Jacob. And God sticks with Jacob. So Jacob, along with his four women, produce a large family. At this point, we have ten sons and one daughter. And then comes Joseph. So now we're at eleven boys and one girl now. And they're all moving around all the time. Maybe, you know, maybe when we talk about like hometowns, going back to your hometown, you're thinking, I can't really, like, I don't really have a hometown. We just kind of bounced around. You're in good company. This is the family that Joseph was born into. Messed up family dynamics, bouncing around, passive, passive, passive father. So passive that in Genesis 34, the chapter right before uh, where we're starting, Joseph's sister, the only daughter, the only sister, is raped. And they know who did it, and they know where they are. And Jacob 
as a classic passive male, can't bring himself to confront or engage in conflict. He just kind of runs from it and tries to smooth everything over. He tries to make peace with those who raped his daughter. Well, Joseph's brothers can't handle this. So they take matters into their own hands. They go into the town that their sister was raped in, and they slaughter every single man that they see. So some of Joseph's earliest memories are his older sister crying and his brothers returning home with blood all over them. Because of Joseph's brother's killing spree, the town next to them has this mass funeral. And so Jacob realizes that they're not safe being you know, next to this town. So they, uh, they move once again. And this is when we pick it up in chapter 35, the first major moment, one of the first memories in Joseph's life. And as we enter into Genesis 35, we find young Joseph and his family once again belonging is in hand, walking, traveling. The group is very quiet, tired from travel, but if this family has learned anything, it's the less talking, the less fighting. So just bottle up your frustration. Don't talk it out, bottle it up, and then walk. One of Jacob's wives breaks the silence. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, stops and groans and breathes heavily. A little Joseph, about seven, immediately runs to her. It's his mom. She's very pregnant, something she never thought she would be. Miraculously, she bore Joseph. Somehow she's pregnant again, but not for long, as she leans over in pain. And the hot Middle Eastern sun bakes her as she goes into labor. Well, quickly the family sets up camp, you know, constructing their tent for, for labor and gathering water and towels. For tonight, the family will grow. And this is where we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 35. It says, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. Verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So now we're down to three moms. Three moms. Twelve boys. Imagine the mem this memory of Joseph. One of his earliest memories is attending his mom's funeral. They're in Bethlehem. It's a hilly area of Bethlehem. The family gathers around a small tomb, and dad is sobbing as he places a few flowers near the entrance. The cries of a newborn interrupt the eulogy going on. And little Joseph stands there trying to process everything. He has a, a new baby brother. He's not the baby of the family anymore. He doesn't have mom anymore. And she meant so much to him. I mean, you have 10 older brothers who don't care for him much because daddy likes baby brother best. So he, he's, he's not close with his brothers at all. The other women aren't his mom. He has his dad, but at the same time, his dad is too passive to do anything about these messed up family dynamics. Joseph didn't just lose his mom, which is an incredible pain right there. At seven years old, it feels like his whole life is being buried with his mom. And following the funeral, the family dynamics, they get even more dysfunctional. You can see in verse 22, in verse 22, the oldest brother, Reuben, fancies one of Jacob's women and sleeps with her. This almost seems like an episode of Maury, doesn't it? Is Maury still on? I remember when I was a kid, I, I, you know, you stay home from, sick from school and you get the, the, the chicken noodle soup. And, and the only channel on in the afternoon, at least where I was in Wisconsin, the only channel on in the afternoon was Maury. And I wasn't allowed to watch it, you know, for good reason. It was just a messed up show, just a bunch of made up drama and bad acting. This is not that though. This like, this is for real. Oldest brother fancies one of dad's squeezes, sleeps with her. Talk about an awkward family dinner table from here on out. And to make matters worse, Jacob finds out about it and he does what a typical passive husband and father does. Sweeps it under the rug, tries to make the quickest peace. 
This is the classic move of a passive husband and father. And I know this because this is what I'm tempted to do. Often when there's a situation going on in the home that's very difficult, some sort of tension, or there's a sin issue, or there's an attitude, especially if it involves, you know, your other half, smooth it over. Let's just smooth it over. Passive men really struggle to stand up and have a difficult conversation, and so they make the quickest peace. Let's just fake the harmony. And then what often happens, you know, this over and over and over, is the frustration and, and the tension in the home begins to build, and it hits this breaking point. Things kind of bubble over, and the man will have to get angry to have the courage to deal with it. Yeah, this is so, so, so common. I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want to confront the issue. I don't want to start any conflict. So I'm just going to hold on to it. But now I can't hold on to it anymore. So I'm going to make myself get angry to have the courage to say what needs to be said. And then it's just this big blow up, knock down, drag out fight. When in reality, it's far more healthy to just confront as the issues arise. That leads to a more healthy, enjoyable home. The kind of home that kids want to come back to and visit. But this was not the home that Joseph grew up in. And guys in here, I don't mean to be hard on you, but I'm a guy. Okay, so I'm with you. But we have to check ourselves on this. Being a Jacob today is so extremely common in 2022 Western culture. Being a guy who's just okay with being a coward. See some sort of sin in the home, afraid to lead. It's just too messy to deal with. So instead of dealing with it, I'm just going to try to facilitate peace and sweep it all under the rug. Let's just try to keep the wife happy. Let's just try to keep the kids happy. Meanwhile, the whole house is frustrated because the guy isn't doing what God created the guy to do, to lead, to push, to deal with the sin in the home, have the conversation that nobody else wants to have. And Joseph pays the price for his dad's lack of leadership. So with all of that, it's like the long, long background to Joseph's life. We jump into chapter 37, verse 1. Flip over to 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So finally, we have a home base for the family. Canaan, specifically Hebron, which is just south of Bethlehem. Joseph moves around quite a bit as, he's, as a child, but when he thinks about his hometown, one day when he's sitting in Egypt thinking about back home, this is what would come to mind. Very hilly area, very warm area. The winters are, are very, very green. It's a great place for a middle school boy like Joseph to explore, you know, climbing the hills, exploring the caves, chasing the sheep. It's a great spot to raise a family. It's a great spot to grow up. And finally, the family makes home. Verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zippah and his father's, or his father's wives. And then look at this. End of verse 2 is now it starts. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. A little snitch. I'm not sure I like this kid already. You just picture this scene, right? Dad comes and asks the boys, okay, he has the family business. Family business is livestock, right? And they were wealthy. They had cattle that covered hills. They needed lots of boys to maintain the, the, the herds of, of cattle and sheep. So dad comes and says, okay, how's the business? And I'm sure the older brothers are like, hey, it's great. Dad, like uh, birth rate is up. Survival is good. No sickness is going through. Like solid, solid numbers. And dad's like, hey, that's what I wanted to hear. Until a squeaky voice comes from the back. Uh, dad, you should know. Back there, those guys, uh, they barbecued one of the sheep. Uh, they invited one of, some women into their tents, and they're growing something green and skunky in one of the valleys. And you know the brothers are like, you got to be kidding me, kid. It's not a great start. And it gets worse. Verse 3 says, now, now Israel, 
So that's Jacob. So God renamed Jacob Israel. Today, the nation of Israel, when we talk about the nation of Israel, that's actually a memorial of Jacob, Joseph's dad. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. It's very interesting that's in Scripture. There have been studies on parenting techniques of new parents versus uh, old parents, young parents versus old parents. It's been found that uh, often older parents, if you have a child in your older age, um, tend to favor their kids more. Just more easier on them, more helicopter protective. And many sociologists believe it's because when you're older and you have a kid and you spent years not knowing if you're going to have a child, and then when you get one, you're like more guarded and you're more protective. And so that's probably what's going on, or that's what at least what Genesis is saying um, Jacob is. It's not just it's not just older parents though too. I mean, this is like this is very very common today with even younger parents. It becomes a child central home. You know what I mean by that? Everything is about the kids. Everything is about the kids. And so what happens is um, the wife is no longer really a wife, just a mom. Same thing with the dad. No, no longer really a husband, just a dad. And so the wife and the husband, they kind of lose, lose touch with each other. They're not, there's, there's not this foundation of a marriage in their home. Everything is about the kids. This is why a lot, there's a lot of divorces. Once the kids leave, there's a lot of divorces with empty nesters because then they look at each other like, I don't really know you. We haven't really worked on this whole marriage for decades because everything has been about the kids. Child center home. It's, it's, it's very, very toxic. But you kind of see a little of this playing out here. You have Jacob, old, older father, favors, favors Joseph. Um, and it's sin. This is the sin of favoritism. But this is, how, this is how Jacob was raised, actually. Jacob's father, if you know the story of like Jacob and Esau, Jacob's father Isaac favored Jacob's twin brother. So Jacob grew up in the shadow of his twin brother. Always wanted his dad's approval. And now he's repeating the same sin cycle in his family. Even though dad's favoritism hurt him, he's now repeating it with his boys. So I just want to stop and say, parents in here, don't have a favorite. Don't do it. And you might think, okay, but this one's like a demon spawn, and like this one's cute and cuddly. How can I not? You just, you just love them all in their worlds. Some kids are easier for sure. Some kids are just easier to connect with. Like out of my three, I have one. She's just, she's easier to connect with for, for me personally. Like she's just more like me. I easily understand her. We laugh because like I can call what, what she's thinking and what she's feeling. When I ask her what she wants to do, usually she says something that I want to do because we enjoy the same type of things. The other night I was putting her to bed and, and she said to me, she said, dad, when people talk, I, I want to join in and have a conversation, but I never know what to talk about. I was like, yeah, kid, that's how I spent my whole life. The other two girls are, are less like me. They're more extroverted. And when they communicate how they feel, I have a harder time, like I, I'd have an easier time understanding Swahili, just like lots, lots of emotions. So the other two are, are less like me. But you know what that means? I have to put in more work with the other two. I have to understand them just as much as the one I have an easier time understanding, which means more time with the other two. I actually learned this from my dad. Growing up, my, my dad and I didn't have many natural things in common. I'm 6'2-ish, he's 5'7-ish, you know, he wrestled, I hate wrestling, and he could have easily just gave up. It would have been easier for him to just connect with, with my brother, because he would have had an easier time connecting with my brother, but my dad worked hard to find something that we could enjoy together, and so he found scuba diving, let's do that together, and I love that, he loved that, so hey, that worked. My brother didn't like scuba diving, he's the opposite of me, my brother would rather race, and so my dad connected with my brother with, with competitive go-kart racing. So very different boys, my dad would have had an easier time connecting with my brother, but my dad worked hard to connect with, with me, and I'm very grateful for that. Had, I, had my dad been passive, he would have just connected with my brother. 
See, the sin of favoritism isn't, isn't usually intentional. It just happens when there's a child that's easier to connect with. And so connecting with them is going to be more natural, and it's going to happen more frequently. And then you don't put in the work with the other kid who's harder to connect with, and then they feel ostracized and less than. And some of you know what that feels like. It's very, very common. We're seeing it here. And then it goes on full display. You probably heard this, the end of verse 3. It says, and he, meaning Jacob, made him a robe of many colors. It's like, okay, come on, man. Like, that's like bringing home ice cream for just one kid. Like, Dad, where's mine? Well, I don't have ice cream for you. I hate you. He just, you don't do that. Now, this is one of those iconic pictures, isn't it? Robe of many colors. And, and often what happens with iconic pictures like this is, you know, we retell these stories all the time. We tell them to our kids, you know, all the time. And what happens is we tend to not dig deeper then because it's been retold so often. And this has been retold a lot, hasn't it? Like Joseph in a Technicolor dream coat. And then we just kind of leave it at that. There's more going on here than just some fancy colorful coat, but we have to dig a little bit more to, to get to it. So let's do that. The wording in Hebrew for robe here means a special robe, not just with the color, but actually the, the design of it. It's a long robe, a robe that extended to your wrists and to your ankles. Now that's even more rare because robes in this region were, were short. It's a hot climate. So you're out in the sun sweating. You're working with your hands. So your robe would be like a tank top and then to your knees. The robes that were full length were very, very special. Whoever wears a robe full length means they don't do manual labor. It's kind of like you don't send a welder to a job in an Armani suit. You just don't do that. The guy wearing a Rolex at the construction site, he's not going to be swinging a hammer. That's, what, that's what's going on here. This robe communicates to the family, uh, Joseph is above our family's work. So don't ask Joseph to go do what we should do. Tell him to shear the sheep. Don't ask him to do that. Don't ask Joseph to go pull weeds. Don't ask Joseph to go fetch water. That's not for him. He's got the nice threads. And so jealousy overtakes the home. It's not just because, you know, Joseph's coat looks like an Elton John cover. That's not the reason. These brothers likely don't care about fashion. I mean, they're blue-collar guys. It's more about what these, this robe represents. We can't ask little brother to do what we should be able to ask little brothers to do. Instead, he's wearing this coat, which means he's better than the work that we as the older brothers do. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his, all of his, the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And so sets the stage for family drama and division and broken relationships. And this is where we're going to leave the family for this week. Something is brewing. And we're going to continue to see it brew next week. It'll come to a head in, in a couple weeks. But something is brewing. And this is just where I kind of want to stop and ask you, do you know what that's like? to have something brewing in the family, something brewing in your friendships, something brewing in your office. You know what that's like? That awkwardness, that, some tension. Maybe you have some tension with a coworker, tension in your marriage, tension with your child, tension with a roommate. So there's some sin going on, some hurt feelings, some bitterness, some resentment brewing. And it's it, it, it's sort of awkward. You kind of walk on eggshells around them. You know, you don't bring that thing up at home. You don't bring that thing up with the family. You know, so let's just keep the conversation. Very One thing we need to address, but it feels like so much more. You just kind of got this list going. Anybody have any lists going on some people? It's kind of like that old quote, um, when there's a burr in your saddle, everything hurts. You ever hear that? It's a super hick <laughs> saying, isn't it? What it comes from is when you put a, a saddle on a horse, if there's a burr underneath, it'll hurt the horse. 
and the, the horse won't do anything you tell it to do. The horse will be on edge, and you just, you're not going to be able to work with the horse. And it just feels like everything, everything is frustrating. All you have to do is just get rid of the burr underneath the saddle. But that represents so many of, of our, our families, so many of our friendships, so many of our, our offices. It just kind of feels like everything, everything hurts. There's this list. You know, everything they say just annoys you. Every thought of them just kind of turns sour. There's lots of bitterness. And if you just address that one thing, have that one difficult conversation, it would be a lot easier. But instead, everything is just going to continue to hurt. It's a very dangerous road to be on, and, and it takes a lot of courage to get off that road. Courage that Jacob doesn't have. It's why this family will continue down this road and into tragedy. This is where we pause and just say, what are you going to do then? Because there's something brewing in your family, job, friendships. What are you going to do? Are you going to do what Jacob did? See, this story is recorded in detail in our Bibles for a reason. God spent so much on Genesis, in Genesis on this story because he wants us to slow down and really feel this. It's why Paul wrote in Romans 15 that these stories are in Scripture to instruct us. The backstory of Joseph isn't just some story. We can just dig into Joseph's past and be like, hey, let's get some juicy dirt on Joseph's family. So we all feel better about our jacked up families. No, the, the, the backstory of Joseph is written on these pages to serve as a warning to instruct us. And so we're going to take a couple of these warnings home. The first warning that we find in Scripture is passivity ruins families. Passivity ruins families. You can replace families here with offices. You can replace families here with organizations, friendships. Passivity ruins pretty much anything. I know this seems more like a warning for those who live with family units. And so singles, I just want to address you for one second. I would never leave you out. Our church is bursting with singles. Heaven forbid we, we should leave out a, a huge portion of our, of our church family. At the same time, this is something that we get from the text in a family one day. And singles, I think you'd also agree that our, our culture rests on the family unit. We've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about this. The health of our families. So the family goes, our society goes. Healthy families, thriving society. Break down the family, which we're seeing today, society crumbles. This is not just a sociological fact. We're observing this all around us today. The family unit is precious. And the reality is, is there is a target on your family to divide your family, to frustrate your family, to destroy your family. Families need leadership. And no enemy is more subtle than passivity. To just sit back try to appease, make fake peace, sweep things under the rug instead of manning up and doing what's right. This kills families. You can trace this sin back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 is pretty fascinating. It, it, it talks about when, when Satan approached Eve, you know the whole story, like snake approaches Eve. I always thought like Adam's somewhere else, but the actual language in Hebrew, Adam is right there when Eve is approached. He's not out killing and grilling. Like, he's right there with Eve. And he just lets it all play out. He doesn't step in. He's like, no, that's not true. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't confront. He didn't put his foot down. He's like, we're not doing that. He just let it all play out. Let's just keep Eve happy. Whatever you want, dear. And this sin plagues husbands today. Not leading, not stepping up, not calling out sin as it comes up in the home. What makes it worse, too, is I've seen husbands excuse their passivity as, and they call it servant leadership. No, it's not passivity. I'm just, you know, I'm just serving her and the kids by sweeping things under the rug. You know, I'm just not going to make that a big deal. 
because, you know, I'm, I'm just serving them. Okay, that's not servant leadership. That's just cowardly. That's, that's deadly. That's Jacob. Servant leadership in the home looks like serving the family by having vision for the family and confronting issues and pushing and leading and setting the example and serving by having those conversations that nobody wants to have. Getting the family to worship. In a loving way, it's saying what needs to be said. That's the hard work. And for me, I, I wouldn't choose to do that. Like, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not like up here on some high horse, you know, some like fantastic leader of the family. I'm convicted by this too. And the other night, Nicole brought a Bible into the, the girls' room for bedtime, and I'm glad she did it. it but it kind of hurt me because like I've been many times where I'll think, I just don't have that conversation because it's just going to be a big deal, and I'll put it off, and I'll put it off, and I'll put it off until it gets worse and the house culture suffers. Some of us have been doing this for years in our home, and that's our operating system. Husbands, we naturally do what Adam did. We naturally do what Jacob did. And it comes with a heavy price. Our wives pay the price. Our kids pay the price for that. We are in our families for far more than just appeasing. Our families are worth more than that. We're to have vision and serve by pushing those that God has blessed us with. And to not do that in our world, to not do that, the family will implode. Frustration, division. One day the kids just are not going to want to return and visit. Our families can't afford passivity today. And I'm not just talking to the dads. Moms too. Moms, hold the, hold the dads accountable to this. Be involved in the kids' lives, intentionally teaching and guiding and, communic and, 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 and confronting and encouraging. A recent study shows that the average kid today, this blew my mind, the average kid today gets seven hours of screen time a day. Seven hours of screen time a day for a kid, five minutes with dad. YouTube can't raise our kids. The school systems can't raise our kids. Bridge kids can't give your kids everything spiritually. Parents, we must be intentional. First modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus and then intentionally, creatively instilling those values in our kids. To not do that is to watch our kids pay the price for our sin, our passivity. The second warning that we get from this is envy flourishes under bad leadership. Envy flourishes under bad leadership. You, you probably attest to this even maybe in your office. You're just thinking, man, there's so much envy, lots of competition with sales and all of this, and the boss doesn't do anything, and it just gets worse. Well, think about it in the context of it with what we just read. You have four wives. Four wives. So the foundation of that family, the marriage, already fraught with envy and competition. And what happens is the culture always drips down from the top. Culture always drips from the marriage to the kids. So the marriage sets the tone in the home, and it did with Joseph's family. So the marriage is envy, frustration, and now the kids have it. The oldest boy is envious of one of dad's women, sleeps with her. The brothers are envious of, of Joseph. Like the family is just riddled with envy. And that envy thrives and morphs because it was under bad leadership. Jacob just wasn't going to put in the work to have the courage to confront and fight the envy in his family. Envy flourishes under bad leadership. This is something Jesus was constantly on his disciples for. He would not have it in his team. This is a common conversation my dad would have with me growing up. He's pointing out envy. I remember driving in, in the car and my dad confronting envy that I had around extended family. It was like cousins. And I thought, one of the cousins was getting more attention than, than I got. And so, you know, I'm just kind of you know, venting, so to speak. And my dad, my dad says, he's just like, you know, I think that's envy. 
Like, oh, what does he know? You know, I get all defensive. What does he know? You know, he doesn't know what I'm thinking. He doesn't know my heart. Problem is, he was right on. I was, I was just envious, and he was confronting that. A lot of times, when I had a complaint about someone, I could bring it to my dad, and my dad a lot of times would be like, "It just sounds like you're envious. Like, just stop." He's like, "No, I just don't like them." But what, what was he doing? He was keeping something out of his home, and he was making me better, and I'm grateful for it. And now I'm doing that with my girls, right? Three girls, close to the same age. It's a lot of conversations. Man, I think a big part of your issue with your sister right now is you're just envious, and I think you just need to celebrate her. If I don't do that, my girls won't want to be close, and they won't want to come back and visit home later on. So if you have a family, take that seriously. But whether you have a family, Joseph's brothers, you just don't like them. And I bet their face came to mind right now. You just don't like them. They annoy you. They bother you. You don't want to be around them. And you have excuses. Right now you go, no, I have a reason I don't like them. I just don't like them. But the real reason is they're ahead of you in something. They have something you don't have. They get more attention than you. They're just more likable. They make friends easier. And you just don't like them. That's envy. And if you're going to lead yourself, you have to identify that, take it seriously, and work to kill it. And the way you kill it is by celebrating them. Oh, Junior, I can't celebrate that person. Are you kidding me? Like, I feel like I'll die inside celebrating them. Yeah, that's the envy in you dying. That's what that feels like. See, Joseph's family serves as a warning. Left to our own vices, our hearts darken, our homes spiral, and our stories become tragic. It happens naturally. It happens constantly. Envy flourishes under passivity, and it brings you to ruin. This is the family Joseph comes from. But what I love about this is it also provides hope. There is hope. You think about it. Somehow, that seven-year-old boy crying at his mom's funeral, feeling the weight of his brother's hatred, living under the passivity of his dad in a broken home. This kid, if any kid is on the fast lane to becoming a troubled adult, it's this kid. Yet somehow, someway, this kid will go down in history as one of the greatest elite, high-level leaders. His impact on global politics is still seen today. That's hope. Maybe you walked in here today in a tough position. You're from a dysfunctional family. Or maybe you walked in here starting to realize that your passivity is leading to a dysfunctional family. You just you haven't been doing what you should be doing. Maybe your career is working under bad, toxic leadership. Maybe you just have a lot of envy in your heart. Joseph serves as hope. Here's a guy who is born into this whirlpool of unhealthy leadership and envy. The family is just spiraling. It's this nasty whirlpool. And Joseph, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Joseph stands up, swims against the current, and reverses the waters. There is hope. Oh, it's going to take work. It's going to take courage. It's going to take a day in and day out intentionality to fight against that current, to push against the norm, to push against normally what you normally do or what the family normally does, to kill sin and unify. But in the end, it is worth it to showcase the beautiful, beautiful kingdom of God in us, in our homes, in our families, giving the next generation a better path to walk and a good example to emulate. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.